Welcome everyone to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. I'm also a cat wrangler and a book junkie. I am thrilled to be here tonight with someone who just feels like a friend forever. We've been talking for so long. Um, Brian Cuban is my guest. Hi, Brian. How are you? Hey, how are you, Pam? I'm well. And he's here to talk about his new book called The Ambulance Chaser. It is Brian's first work of fiction, although he's written several other books before. But let me tell you a little bit about who Brian is. Brian is um, an attorney. He's an author. He's a motivational speaker. Um, his life story is quite interesting. He is the younger brother of entrepreneur Mark Cuban, who most of you know from either Shark is it Shark Tank, Brian? Shark Tank, yes. Yeah, I don't have a television, so I don't know that. <laughs> Shark Tank and the Dallas Mavericks. Um, so, uh, and, and they're very, very close, which is lovely. I, I'm very thrilled for that. They are very good friends. Um, but Brian had body dysmorphic problems when he was younger. Um, he turned to alcohol and drugs. He was bulimic. And so uh, he finally turned himself over to recovery and has made it his life's work to discuss what happens when all these overlapping issues from bullying to drinking to drugs to bulimia to all of these other issues come into play. He's now so... Uh, recovered so well and has done such a remarkable job that he is a very in-demand speaker around the country. He goes everywhere to talk about his story. Now, um, you've got a couple books out already, and we're going to talk about those, right, Brian? And then we're going to talk about where Brian came from addiction to fiction, the ambulance chaser. Welcome to the show, Brian Cuban. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here with you. I'm thrilled that you're here with me. I have been looking forward to this interview for, I don't know, we've been talking for months now, haven't we? Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> I want to start from the beginning. Um, tell me about growing up. What was your life like as a kid? Uh, well, I grew up in Pittsburgh, PA, born and raised. Uh, the middle of three boys. Uh, Mark is the oldest. And I have a younger brother, Jeff. And we were baby boomers. Uh, Back when uh, cell phones were two cups attached to a string, right? Right. And uh, and social networking was playing uh, kickball, right? On the on the basketball court. So those sure. days before the internet, and uh, we were very different. Uh, my two Mark, Jeff, and I are very different. Mark was even as a teenager, outgoing, entrepreneurial, and I remember our local newspapers went on strike in Pittsburgh, and he and his buddies, barely old enough to drive. Uh, drove out to Cleveland, which is about 200 miles away, bought their newspapers. Uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer drove them back to Pittsburgh and sold them on a street corner in downtown Pittsburgh for twice what they paid for them. Oh my gosh! So you knew he knew how to see need even as a teen, a young teen. He was uh, he was blowing and going right. But uh, and then my younger brother Jeff uh, was a nationally ranked wrestler in high school, wow. a jock, and. Uh, you know, the prom, the beer parties and the dates, the girls. And I was I was classic middle child syndrome and I was shy. I was withdrawn. I tended towards isolation and uh, I kind of internalized anything negative said about me. I was a heavy kid trending towards obese and uh, wore it as who I was like a skin tight suit, Pam. And unfortunately, I had a difficult relationship with my mom. And I'll tell you a little bit about this. But I want to make it clear to your uh, listeners and your watchers that I don't blame my mother for anything I went through. Parents don't cause addiction. Parents don't cause eating no. disorders. There's a difference between cause and correlation. Yes, there is. And uh, so we know correlation is it can happen to some people, you know, because things happen at home, but won't happen to others, right? 
Right. And so uh, there was a lot of fat shaming in my house. Uh, I used to come home and I used to love Chef Boyardee ravioli and SpaghettiOs. Do you remember those? Who didn't love them? You could eat them out of the You didn't even have and to That's eat exactly them. what I did. That's exactly what I did. Beefaroni. I'd come home, and this is before electric can openers. You get the old can opener, and you go, I still have stick one. We- yeah, we didn't have a microwave. You stick right. the spoon in, eat it out of the can. Right. And my, mo- my mom would come home, and she sold real estate. She'd come home and walk into the kitchen and say, Brian, if you keep eating that way, you're going to be a fat pig. Now, these were the things her mother said to her. These right. were the things my great-grandmother said to my grandmother. I come from a Right. It's very fat shaming is often handed down generationally. Yes. And I came from an Eastern European uh, Jewish family, uh, the old country, the stereotypical Jewish grandmother, food, 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 right? Right. And my mother had a very verbally and mentally abusive relationship with her mom, uh, who was bipolar, according to my mom. And uh, so she was going through her own stuff and her own mental health issues. And, uh, and this was at a time in the 70s when a young mother talking about any kind of mental health issues, you could be put in an asylum. Of course. So you, and you your children talk. taken away. Yeah. yeah. And so you didn't talk about it. And, right. But not under, and so, and it ran downhill. I don't blame my mom for that. We have a very good relationship. Uh, but not understanding those things, I began to eat more Chef Boyardee ravioli and more Chef Boyardee ravioli. And I became a bigger Brian and a bigger Brian. Then the bullying really got going at school. And I, there's a funny story around that, Pam. It was, I call it the day of the gold pants. It's not funny probably to the people watching, but, uh, an interesting story. My I, brother I read Mark, this story. I read this story yeah. on your blog. It was it was numbing, mind numbing to that. Yeah. For that. And uh, my brother Mark had uh, it was during the disco era, Saturday Night Fever, John right. Travolta, and he was very into that. And he had this pair of shiny gold bell bottom disco pants that he gave to me. I know, but this was the seventy mid seventies. And uh, I'm just thinking. Fit- I'm wondering if he's watching this on his Twitter feed or something. And I'm thinking he's he's going to kill you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But he knows. He, he loved his disco back then. He was going to the club. We all so. did. <laughs> yeah, I was a little young for it, but uh, Mark was into it big time. Uh, but uh, I love Saturday Night Fever. So uh, he gave me these pants, but they fit Mark okay. I had to jump up and down. Spray the water bottle to get in, and my butt looked like fifteen cats trying to get out. He's the shoehorn, and and uh, but I didn't care because I love my brother. He gave me these pants, and I wore them to school. And the kids made fun of me, you know, fat pig, and this and that. And uh, and I developed a very self-deprecating sense of humor, Pam. Uh, so the kids wouldn't know how much it hurt me. I hurt became you. the sad, the sad clown. Right? Yeah, I know. I'm headed to Sears to get a bra, right? for my man boobs and I laugh about it but in my mind these were the popular kids these were the you know all the kids getting their first date going to the football games you know get their first kiss all the things I wanted so badly but just felt that no girl could ever be interested in me but I felt if I hung around these popular kids it would kind of rub off and it would be like a fraternity hazing and one day they'd say you're one of us right but that's not how bullying works it all culminated. I was walking home with these kids wearing my shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants, and they're making fun of me, and I'm laughing it off, and they start pulling at them. And before I know it, they had physically assaulted me. They had tore them off down to my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities my uh, Pittsburgh Pirates T-shirt, my Keds tennis shoes, and my tube socks with the three rings around them. You remember of those? Course. yes. Three different color rings. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, and they went on like they had done, they threw them in the street, the shreds. They went on like they had done the funniest thing ever. I 
I pecked my way out into the busy street, got them, covered up my tidy whities and uh, waddled home. People gawked as they drove by, cars whizzing by. No one stopped. And I got home and there was no one home. It was funeral quiet. And I tiptoed down the wooden stairs to our basement, but the stairs creaked. And with every creak, Pam, I thought the whole world knew my shame. I didn't know how to stand up to bullies. And my brothers knew, my parents knew, and the kids who did it knew, and all the girls at the school knew. And so I found a wastebasket and I buried those shreds at the bottom of the wastebasket, hoping that it would bury my shame. Shame, but that's not how shame works. That's not how trauma works. And that incident was so traumatic in my life that I could go to that spot in Pittsburgh and show you where it happened. And that was kind of the beginning, the kind of the perfect storm of a very shy, withdrawn young man uh, who was bullied, who had a difficult relationship with his mother. And it kind of all came together in this traumatic event for me to start looking at myself in the mirror and just seeing this fat pig, this monster who would never be loved, never get married, never have a girlfriend. It would always be unworthy of anything. And that was the beginning as a teenager. It seems to me, you know, that it's particularly hard when you're a young person and you get bullied because you're not fully developed. Even your brain's still not fully developed. You haven't lived enough to understand um, you don't need to be popular or anything like that. You really were in the perfect storm. You had a very very entrepreneurial older brother that you looked up to. And then you had an athletic younger brother and then this crazy relationship with your mom. Um, so I can understand and I can, I recall kids who spiraled in that sense, people that I knew. And this, and the thing is, Brian, at, at that time for us, we didn't know what it was called. It was not called bullying. They no, were just, not in the seventies. No. It wasn't called bullying. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I graduate. I'm 67. I graduated high school in 72. I remember there were either the kids you didn't want to hang out with or the ones you did. And, and the, the bad kids were the ones that, you know, smoked around the school grounds. You, the girls who, who slept around and you assumed, but never, never would I ever think about something called bullying. Yeah. There were kids who were rough on other students, but you know, I felt fearful to step in and say anything. I didn't want someone to hit me or push me. And I felt if I tried to stick up for someone, that's what would happen. Is that what happened to your friends? And is that what happened to you? Did you withdraw? I did withdraw. And I really, uh, I I had one friend uh, who was a good friend. And we we were sort of the outcast. I was the outcast, right? Right. uh, I was the, uh, what's the crazy red haired guy, the movie? what was that? I was the Napoleon Dynamite. Oh. And uh, kind of the outcast. And uh, we used to, we hung out together and we'd skip school and we ended up smoking pot. And we'd, uh, and we had my, my buddy Phil and I ended up taking a, a Greyhound bus with $50 across the United States after I graduated high school and uh, just to Santa Monica Beach where uh, we hung out and drank and smoked pot. But he was my only friend. He, he was literally my only friend. And I was very withdrawn. And, uh, I went on to college to Penn State, and uh, it all kind of, before I knew it and before I it had a name, really, I was binging and purging. I had become bulimic. I didn't know what it was called. And then I was drinking. And, uh, yeah, guys do get eating disorders, people. Oh, yeah. and uh, Just like they I get began, breast cancer. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I became an alcoholic in college. In the, and uh, now we're going into the late 70s and 80s. 
and then I was able to do okay. And I, uh, you were a functioning I, alcoholic in school to the extent you can. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, I, I didn't, I, I was a person who you look at it. Okay. All the kids are drinking, but I was drinking alone. I was definitely an alcoholic. I was drinking alone and I was drinking in the alleys of Penn state with a bottle with liquor I'd buy at the state store. So I could, I'd finish off a bottle before I'd even go into the bar alone. Oh my gosh. Uh, so, uh, I was definitely an alcoholic. And, uh, did you know then that you had an alcohol problem? No, I had no, no. clue. I, it was survival. It was how I survived. Uh, because without the alcohol, I was in pain. I, I, I was in pain and I was lonely. And, uh, and did your family was, recognize any of this? You were, you hit it very well. Well, in the say you have to remember in the again in the seventies there wasn't much awareness as it was, and right. I was away at Penn State. I was one hundred fifty miles away at school, right? Living in living in a dorm, and you're doing. I mean, the other seventeen and eighteen years old and nineteen year olds, they don't, you know, they're 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 in their own lives. They're not recognizing. They're drinking too. They're drinking too, so, right? So nobody's asking for help. There are no resources for help. How did uh, you get into law school? With um, you maintain grades well enough, you pass the LSAT. So how how did that happen for you? And what happened in law school? Did anything change? Did you have any you know uh, lifestyle changes, or did it only get worse? That that's a wonderful question. Uh, I never wanted to be a lawyer ever ever. Really? I was I wanted to be a police officer. That would have worked out well with my <laughs> cocaine issue, with my love of cocaine back then, right. but. Uh, but that came later, though. But uh, I uh, I wanted to be a cop. And I was sitting and I remember it like it was yesterday. I was sitting in the placement office at school, looking through, thumbing through police officer jobs. This is before computers. There are these little pamphlets. Sure. And there are two guys next to me who were from Pittsburgh, who I kind of knew, but I didn't know them from Pittsburgh. I knew them from school. And uh, they're talking about taking the LSATs and talking about going to the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. So it just it just clicked in my head that not that I wanted to be a lawyer, be Clarence Darrow, emulate Atticus Finch, change the world. It clicked that I law school is three years and I can stay in school three more years and not have to show my true ugliness to anyone. I could binge and purge. Wow. I can drink. And I'd also be gunning running excessively, exercise bulimia. And I can engage in these beha- same behaviors that I did at Penn State and just survive moment to moment. Because I, I, th- these behaviors were like my line of security blanket. I owned them. Sure. I carried them with me everywhere. And I didn't want to have to share them with anyone. I didn't want to have to share it with the world so they can see how, you know, see the ugly Brian, the monster Brian that everyone else saw in my mind. They didn't see that, right? But that's what I projected. So for those reasons only, I decided to go to law school. It's amazing to me. So you graduate law school. Do you go into law practice? Well, I graduated law school barely by the skin of my teeth. I graduated. It didn't get any better. Uh, I was an alcoholic all through law school. Uh, again, I was binging and purging. And uh, in law school, it's not quite the same. You you actually have to study. And I wasn't going to class. I was going to class drunk and hungover. And uh, you can get away with it to some degree in college. But in law school, it doesn't work that way. And I graduated by the skin of my teeth, uh, but I did graduate and I moved to Dallas, Texas. I picked up with a duffel bag and a hundred dollars to my name. And I uh, took a Greyhound bus to Dallas, Texas, where Mark and Jeff, where I am now, where both my brothers live, Labor Day, 1986. Uh, Mark met me at the bus station. I moved in with him and I hadn't passed the Texas bar and uh, trying to find work. And it was like throwing gasoline on a fire pan because yeah. they didn't know my problems. 
Mark and Jeff, and I wasn't going to tell them. They're and it was out just another fa- you felt another failure, and so it's snowballing by this time, well, and it's it, really getting some steam going. Yeah, it, it was just more. It was just rinse, wash, repeat. Right. Because they're out dating, they're young, they're dating, they're out at the bar, so I fit right in. And then in the summer of 1987, uh, in a bathroom of a nightclub in Dallas, Texas, a, a bar, I discovered the one thing that for the first time in my life allowed me to look in the mirror. And I started my journey as Jason Feldman of the Ambulance Chaser. Uh, I discovered cocaine. And for the first time in my life, uh, at least for the moments of those highs, I looked in the mirror and loved myself. Wow. And, uh, and that was now I'm in my twenties and I'd never loved myself ever, except when I was snorting cocaine. And so that began my journey of cocaine and alcohol and cocaine and alcohol took over my life as a practicing lawyer. I went into personal injury law and, uh, I was a borderline to often blatantly unethical lawyer in how I got my cases. And I know your readers are going to, your watchers are going to be, does this guy still have his license? Yeah. But it wasn't for a lack of trying to lose it. Uh, and I say that tongue in cheek, the lawyers, there are a lot of lawyers struggling and they do lose their license. As there are doctors, by the way. Yeah. So, they lose, yeah. they lose their careers. They lose their family. And that all happened to me. Uh, three divorces, two trips to a psychiatric hospital. Uh, I decided to end my life in, by suicide in 2005, the summer of 2005. And, um, uh, my, at the urging of a friend, my brothers came into my house and I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand and it was cocaine and everywhere. And that wasn't even my, quote unquote, rock bottom, because uh, I wouldn't find recovery for another uh, year and a half about. Good grief. How but, did you find recovery, Brian? Easter weekend, I had begun dating a girl. Uh, her name is Amanda. And she moved in with me and uh, she didn't she didn't do drugs and a very light drinker. But I was there. I had a JD in law, but a PhD in camouflaging my behaviors. Sure. And she, she moved in with me and uh, it was Easter week in 2007. Uh, she went away for the weekend. I went out. Next thing I know of Pam, it's two days later. I'm in bed. She's looking down at me. There's cocaine sprawled out on my dresser, you know, lined out. There's alcohol bottles. And uh, she didn't know anything about my problems. She's, she's probably trying to figure out if she walked in the right house. I'm trying to get my bearings. Two days had passed. I blacked out. I had a blackout. Uh, and trying to figure out first what day it is and what time. And what lie I can tell to explain this law and order orgy of evidence, you know, law and order episode that I might not be the person I represented myself to be. And we ended up with our second trip back to the psychiatric hospital. And that is when I decided it was time to turn things around because I'd be dead. And so that was Easter weekend, 2007, Easter. And she, and my wife, and she stuck, stuck by me, by the way. Uh, she stood by me. And I found recovery, and we have now been married over five years and been together going on 16. So I'm so glad to hear that. So what have what motivated you to, first of all, be so open and honest about your own struggle that you write books about it and you go on lectures, you go speak to charities and nonprofits and and law practices and colleges? What brought you to where you are, Brian? Because, because that's I, a lot of stuff to be spilling out into the, into the public forum, and you know, and waiting for someone to hit back at you. Obviously, you've got your self esteem, you have your confidence, you have your recovery, you work on it every day. How did you make that connect? The jump from recovering 
to let me go and tell my story? Uh, it was it was really there was no bright line. It was a progress. It was a process, right? I had I had written uh, I had written my first book, Shattered Image, which is more about body image and uh, right. eating disorders. And at that time, it got a lot of attention. It got a lot of attention because of my last name, and I'm a guy, right? So all of a sudden, colleges and different Rotary clubs and colleges and all these different people are asking me to come talk to them about the book. Right. And the book itself was self-published. It didn't do that well in terms of but sales, you know, right? The cover for that book is really, really good. And if someone that wants to know a picture of what body dysmorphia is, yes. to look at the cover of that book, that's the best definition I've ever seen. Yes, yes. And the, the, the artist is very proud of that cover. That is an, and, it's uh, an awesome yeah. cover. And, you know, and we talk about when people write books and they come to me and ask, I say, what do you want to be, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? And I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I wrote Shattered, wrote Shattered Image, because it was more of a recovery catharsis, because it was the first yes. time I had actually uh, told these secrets, with right. shameful secrets. And what I learned was that there were so many guys and, and, and women and, uh, you know, however people gender identified that were struggling with shame. Yes. And the shame was keeping them from just finding that one person who can help them. Uh, taking that first step. And I, I've learned over the years that the biggest repressor of recovery is shame. Yes. And so, and, and, and so my, when I began to realize that as I went out on the speaking circuit and learning the speaking art of speaking, as, you know, as I, as I went, the art of public speaking, I realized that people would email and come up to me always after, right? And thank you. I thought I was the only one, only especially one. guys with eating disorders body image issue. I thought I was the only one. Now I feel like there is what? Hope. Hope. Absolutely. Now I, so I realized that for just maybe one person, I can give them hope. And what I also realized that I, what I wanted to be when I grew up, because I knew that because of the uh, shattered image was never going to be a national, uh, you know, a New York Times bestseller. But what it became was my calling card to a lot of speaking engagements right? who, who bought a lot of books and handed them out. There you go. You know, there's, so. there's, I, I like the symmetry of it. You know, the, 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 the cause, the effect, um, the, the redemption, those are, I think the best kind of stories. And I would invite you in a heartbeat to, to come and speak. I think you're a great speaker. I've watched a lot of your speeches on your okay. YouTube page. Um, you wrote another book called the addicted, the addicted attorney, right? The Addicted Lawyer, Tales lawyer. of the Bars, Booze, Blow, and Retain. Redemption. Right. Those four words personify my life, right? Well, so what? Well, they used to. Redemption they is. Used to. is but, you know, who else do those four words personify? <laughs> other people with Jason. the same condition. Yeah. Yeah. Jason, Jason. Feldman. The, Jason there they go. Feldman. That's so, right. So when we're, we're going to talk about Ambulance Chaser in just one second, because really, right. today is your book launch. Happy bur book birthday. Yes, today. Yes. But, uh, and, the but Addicted I wanna, Lawyer yes. was more. I mean, now I'm in recovery and I was able to look back on my years as a lawyer and the people I interacted with. And I did some research and I knew from my experience that lawyers have a very difficult time seeking help because uh, we are educational. I call it educationalized, my own word, right. there to uh, take advantage of vulnerability, not allow ourselves to be vulnerable, right? It is viewed as a weakness even today. And so I decided there was a much needed space for this kind of book. And I did my research and there was nothing, nothing, nothing. And, uh, 
And so I decided to write The Addicted Lawyer and I finished it up. I, uh, the literary agent was interest process was interesting in the, uh, in the, uh, proposal process, right? The query process. Right. I had, I, I had a, uh, I had a good proposal and I had interest, but here was the problem. I had literary agent interest. Here was the problem. They all wanted me to change it. Why? Because it is not a pure memoir, right? It can't be categorized. It not only has my story, it has stories of other lawyers. It has tips. Because it could, because an agent couldn't put it into memoir or this. Right, or right. That, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I understand. And, and that I blame on Amazon, by the way, because yeah. we didn't used to worry about, if you recall going into bookstores a long time ago, you went into fiction, nonfiction, cooking, and self-help. And that was it. So if, if and unfortunately, that's just the way it is now. Yeah, and I um, refuse. And I, I and I and I said no. This is, uh, you know, this is what it's going to be. And if that means I have to self-publish it or whatever, that's what's going to happen. But I was I was lucky to get connected with, uh, and I know some people may not like them, but they've been wonderful to me. Post Hill Press. They've been fabulous. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, took a, uh, you know, they have other books besides what they started with. Right. Uh, and they took a chance on me, and the book ended up doing. Uh, you know, niche well, niche well. It is, it's uh, probably sold now four years. It's sold probably close to 8,000 copies. There's nothing wrong uh, with so that, that at all. No, and that's it. That's niche well, right? Right. Uh, and so it is very popular. It became very popular in legal circles and uh, and things like that. So uh, that is how I got with the publisher I'm at today. And that book, uh, you know, I have really been, uh, I speak at law firms. I speak at recovery events. I speak at a lot of bar association events. Right. And what was interesting was, as, as I was finishing up uh, the addicted lawyer, all of a sudden it was. And she's wonderful. I love her book. She gave me a she gave me a blurb. Two blurb. Lisa Smith came out with the girl walks out of a bar. Yeah. Right. And so I'm like, oh man. And so, uh, <laughs> but her, Lisa and I are wonderful friends. And I love that. Book, her book yeah. is wonderful, and then I'm not above pitching a good friend's book. Oh, it's, good. I love that. That's a, good. A girl know. walks out of a bar is a wonderful memoir. So. But uh, and but then uh, the New York Times also wrote a piece about lawyers and addiction, and they mentioned my book. So all of a sudden, and then a national study came out, and all of a sudden it's just boom, boom, boom. And I didn't know any of this was going to happen. The moon before. aligned with Mars on this, right? Every, yeah. Yes, everything yeah. aligned, and all of a sudden the addicted lawyer was on the radar. I think it's great. I, I really do. Um, I read blurbs from both of the books. I have not read them because, you know, I was reading this one in, in preparation for our discussion anyway. Um, but you now have two nonfiction books out there. You've spoken across the country and in Canada to all of these big groups. Um, that's a paying it, paying it forward in a big way, Brian, by the way. That's paying it forward. You've taken what was your own shame and your own humiliation, self lack of confidence, and you put yourself out in the open. And I have to congratulate you for doing that. Well, thank um, you. And that's when you speak in groups, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just, no, not I, at all. I lost, I lost this question earlier. So I wanted to ask you again. Um, when you're, when you're speaking to a big group, do you look at your audience and say, aha, I know, I know, you know, you know who you're talking to. You see that person who's got the same problem you had. Are you able to pick up those cues from people when you're speaking? Well, we have to start with the premise that most people are coming to hear me speak. You know, there are going to be people who are struggling. I know there are people struggling in the audience. That's why 
you know, that's why they're asking me to speak, right? Right. So right. that's going to be a large part of the demographic regardless. But I'm always, anytime I speak, I'm always scanning the audience for reactions and see, right. uh, you know, because in my talk, people cry, they laugh, sure, and, uh, and they cheer, right? So I right. take people through a wide range of emotions, uh, which is, you know, which I want to be authentic uh, with, because people know when you're not. And so, sure, I mean, uh, I... I I, I identify with the people in the audience and uh, I'm very passionate about what I talk about. And it, it, it's interesting because people said, always say, given your childhood and your shyness, how do you do that? Well, you put me in a nightclub or I don't walk in a nightclub, but you put me in a social thing and I'll go to the wall. Right. Right. I'm still that, I'm still that rich shy person in a social situation, but uh, in, in speaking, I'm passionate and I'm not yeah. shy. I am. Um, uh, I do a lot of public speaking myself, and so I, that's why I ask you. Uh, I talk about domestic violence because I'm a survivor myself. Mm-hmm. So I look into the audience, and I I can almost pick the people out of the audience who are my target audience, who are the targets of my discussion. Yeah. I don't. I don't necessarily look for that. What I do is I look at the audience. I don't know. I don't know what the beginning of my speech is until I look at the audience. Every talk is different. Every you're, talk you're, is different. you're an off the cuff speaker too, huh? Uh, for, well, I, you, you're all, you have the same points you hit, right? And you right. change things up. Right. But, uh, I, I don't know what about 10% of my talk is going to be until I, until I actually look in the eyes of the audience and see who's there and make contact. Uh, I've changed up openings on the fly because yeah. I'll see something, I'll smell something, I'll hear something, I'll hear, I'll hear something as I'm walking up to the stage. Right. Uh, and so, uh, you're keeping it in the moment else. too. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be authentic. You've made a jump to fiction and how interesting that the ambulance chaser should be the title of your book. Not, I mean, it, it just goes to say you were a personal injury lawyer, you know, um, this is kind of an autobiographical piece of fiction. Uh, you've learned your, from your own experience and written it into this really twisty little tale. Tell us what made you decide to go to fiction. Uh, what, how many times can you tell your own story in nonfiction, right? <laughs> in memoir. Well, that's true. But, uh, that's true. But, yeah. uh, it, it, it started with a very dark, I had a very dark Genesis, uh, Pam. I used to, I was having this reoccurring dream and this was years ago, this reoccurring dream that took place in Pittsburgh in the area I grew up where a childhood friend, my childhood best friend and I are throwing bodies into a bonfire. Oh my gosh. Okay. And these, and these bodies are burning, but their eyes are open. These eight ball eyes staring at us and then the and then the dream fast forwards to brian as an adult and i have this awful feeling in my stomach that i'm going to be arrested for the for these bodies and for these murders okay and then why haven't i been arrested what's going on and i wake up disoriented with this you know with this beach ball in my gut like where are the cops are they coming and confused and so you try to figure out what dreams mean. And I, every time I would try to figure out what it meant. And I talk to my therapist about it. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm jogging. And I'm out for a jog. And I'm thinking about it. And, what's, and it just hit me. There's characters. There's a plot. And the plot's not a new plot. Old bodies coming back to the present, right? Right. It's not a new thing. And, uh, and so I think I may have a core, at least, of a story, of a fictional story. 
And now it went through many ideations after that. I'm sure. Uh, of different things. But that was the genesis of the ambulance chaser. Fabulous. Let's tell everybody, you get you get your elevator pitch and take as many floors as you need to tell the story. Um, because this is a work of fiction. Even though you've drawn from your own experiences to tell, don't we all right? Don't all don't all uh, fiction authors draw draw? I well, you know, probably other than like fantasy and science fiction, yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. yeah, you write what you know. Yeah, you write what you know. You you write what you want to read too. I think. Yeah, and yeah. So. And I, I mean, and well, it uh, the, the the ambulance chaser is about a Pittsburgh lawyer, Jason Feldman, who finds himself accused of the murder of a high school classmate thirty years prior after her remains are discovered in a vacant lot. He is arrested and charged with her murder. He flees and becomes a fugitive from justice to find the one person who can prove his innocence and save the life of his abducted son. It is a fascinating book. I have to tell you, for a debut fiction novelist, this book is very, very, very good. I oh, had a, a fun time reading it. I read it on my Kindle because I'm. It's easier for me to read on mm -hmm. a Kindle. I can change the font. Um, but I and I'm glad I have this. You know, I'm going to send you a book plate to sign so I can stick it in here. And well, I'm hoping I can meet you and sign and sign. Something. I hope you can too. I'd love to have you down here yeah. in Fort Myers to to take you to all the bookstores around here. You know, I, we've got a ton of them. And I, are you? You know, I, I'm thrilled that it worked out for you, that you've got this book down. Are you thinking, I know today's the launch day, but this book has been done for a while now. Have you thought of your next book? Oh, yeah, there's a sequel. If you had the epilogue, right? The epilogue uh, leaves many things open, and I don't want to give it away. No, of course not. But, uh, Jason, by no means, completes the hero's journey, right? And uh, and there are a lot of uh, strings hanging and that... Uh, that are fertile ground for a second book that I had actually already started, but stopped Good. to uh, market the ambulance chaser. But uh, you, it's a fun read, and I, I don't think it anyone. I mean, it's. I think it's a fun read, and it, it's certainly not literary fiction, right? No, it's, it's uh, it is. A, it's a nice little book of suspense. It's a murder yeah. mystery, and it's very suspenseful. I give it five stars. So oh, as soon as you. I it's, as soon as I can get up to Amazon and I'll go there and you yeah, know punch in my but, little thing. And that's all I, I want people. I was interviewed by the Pittsburgh Jewish uh, the, the Pittsburgh Jewish Chronicle, and I, I read the interview this morning. He said it's uh it's kind of he, he he did compare it to Grisham, which I think is nice. But uh, whatever you think of John Grisham, I love some of it. I books. love him. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, for and a while, Scott Rowe and David Baldacci, all those people, you know, whom yeah, I know. Yeah. They're all terrific yeah, and, uh, and they're great writers. And yeah, listen, they so, all they all started off with a book just like this. Yes. Just and, like uh, this. So it's just a fun, fast read. And is it something that I think somebody will remember six months later? Other than it was a fun, fast read? No. <laughs> no, no. It was well, it's not meant for that. Yeah, I you know, when your next book comes out, then they'll remember that they read That's this right. and they'll say, right. I want to go ahead and read that. So, you know, you've got to be producing every six months now, Brian. That's just That's what right. And, uh, and when I when I when I when I uh, start talking about my second book, that's when they'll go back and say, Man, I really loved this first book. There you and go. It was a, and I want them to say it was a lot of fun. That's right. I um I have taken you for an awful long time, but I've just been so looking forward to talking to you. Do you mind if we take a few more minutes and talk a little bit more? Absolutely. I'm, okay. Is, so, I um, I want you to think back before you wrote your first book, and think now about this first fiction book. 
Has writing changed you personally in any way? Absolutely. It's part of my identity. If if I, I went into recovery April 8th, 2007, on April 7th, 2007, or even April 8th, or for the year after that, if you would have said to me, Brian, you're going to have three books, you're going to do your one of them's an Amazon bestseller, uh, The Addicted Lawyer, and you're going to write your, you're going to have a great launch, which it's been, you know, a great launch. It's uh, been a great launch. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for, for your first uh, thriller, for your first thriller, slap, slap me anytime I say thriller novel, right? <laughs> no, that's okay. You can say thriller yeah. novel. It's fine. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, of course, it's fiction. But uh, uh, I would have said, you're out of mind. I just want another line of blow. Right. Because uh, that's all I saw in front of me. So, yeah, writing is part of my identity. It's what I do. It's what I love. It is. I'm always writing. Even when I'm not writing, I'm writing in my head. Right. Uh, I'm looking for, I, I use my five senses when I watch around. A sound, a smell. Okay, yeah, that's that. I can make that work. That leads to this. Uh, I read. You know, I've stopped because I again I needed to market. But right. I read everything I can get my hands on from. Uh, I read not just legal, not just legal thrillers, and uh, not just crime fiction. Whether it's Winslow, I love Winslow's books, or Balducci, uh, Memory Man was one. great. I'll, I'll send you one of um of Don Winslow's books. I have one. I'll, I'll put it in the mail to you. But I've, oh, I've sent you books already. I'm going to send you another yeah, one. I, his cartel series is very good. I read that. But yeah. uh, and so uh, I've read. I you know I just reached out to every genre. Woman's woman's book. You, are, uh, you, you got cozy books from me because they yeah. were the kid books, and I and love that. I, well, I, let me just explain. I'm not a bookseller, folks. I I did a fundraiser for the Naples Shelter for Abused Women and Children, and in that, uh, a couple hundred of my author friends signed books and sent them to me to sell, and Brian generously purchased five books. Um, you also have a James Lee Burke book, and if you yeah. get through James Lee Burke, you're going to love his other books. He is magnificent. Magnificent. He comes on my show every single year. I love him. He's and I'm looking forward to reading it. Oh, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. So yeah, the other thing I want to know is, um, you know, you now you identify now as a writer. You're also a public speaker, a motivational speaker, um, and it's wonderful. Um, what is the highlight of your day now? The highlight of my day is. Uh... Well, it's kind of funny. Right now, it's uh, dopamine rushes from when people tell me they're buying my book. But, uh, <laughs> but, 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 the, the, the highlight of my day is my time with my wife and my cats and my uh, getting to speak with my family. Those are the things. You, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, you get older, your, your priorities change, right? Yes, your, they do. your priorities change. And yeah. uh, the highlights of my day are different than they were 10 years ago. Uh, I look forward to, I, I'm looking forward to getting back into writing to working on the sequel and the highlights of my day are with family and my kitties and that that. may sound boring but that is no 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 no. you're speaking to the cat woman here who has you know i i wrangle four cats so and i have a cat sitting business too so i I understand that i understand it's it's um it's a soft cushion to be sitting in if that's the best part of your day um what do your brothers think about where you, your journey and where you are now? They have been, I mean, they saved my life, Pam. I mean, Lilith, that we are so close. They have saved, they saved my life when I was trying to end it. Uh, they, it's that simple. 
And so they they have been so supportive. We are very close. We live walking distance. We live walking distance to each other here in Dallas. Really, that's interesting. Yeah, until my until my father passed away, he lived across the street from me. Wow. Uh, so uh, we're a very close family. Something my father instilled. Interestingly, my dad was the three uh, middle of three boys like me. Wow. Uh, he fought in uh, fought fought in Okinawa in the Korean War. But wow. they have been very supportive. Look on social media how Mark's been with his yeah, millions and millions of followers yeah. has been yeah, doing everything he can. I know. I tag him in everything too because I you know, <laughs> want him to know I'm doing my best for you. <laughs> I'm trying to get him to do a book talk for me and we'll see oh, if he does. Oh, that'll be nice. That'll be nice. Yeah, well, you yeah. two can come on and talk about it, about your each your separate journeys. I'm happy to have you both on. If he would do that, I'd do it. One of the things about Mark is he's – very uh what he's protective of his family and us but he's also very protective of his time because i'm sure he is time is right right i listen i understand that completely and i am protective of my time as well i understand that um if i came to you and said my family member or my best friend is suffering from bulimia or or anorexia or alcoholism or drug addiction what would you recommend for me to do? I'd, I'd say you tell tell me how I can help you. Okay, tell me what you're doing. Tell me what the where I'll meet. I I call it meeting people where they are. Tell me what your current situation is, so we can figure out and what you expect to see in three months and six months. What you like to see, and so then I can be your wingman to find you the right path to resources to help. So I I often say this when I'm speaking this to people who are women who are survivors of domestic violence, I'd say, you know, there, here's a whole lot, big menu. You can go take one of everything or you can pick a la carte. Most people don't know those things. So when I published a book myself um, of short stories that benefited the shelter, we put all the resources in the back of it. But I don't know. I have a neighbor who was said he was in recovery for drugs and alcohol and he was a straight arrow about it, but I never asked him, you know, what if our other neighbor was an addicted person? You know, what what do you say to someone that maybe you're not really close to or someone you are close to? What do you say to start that conversation? If you if you want, you know, I, I noticed you're struggling or uh, that you might not be OK. You don't want to be accusatory or judgmental. Right. But if you want to talk about it, I'm here to walk the walk. There you me. go. There you go. It's always the best. You yeah. yeah. You can't make people do with, uh, you know, the old cliche. Uh, unless they're a minor, right, where you can force them into treatment, which that's a whole other story. But uh, right. can't right. make people do what they don't want to do. And This uh, is true. But Absolutely. you can lay the road. You can pave the road for them. You can also not be judgmental and you can say, I'm here for you and then mean it. Because I've heard yeah. a lot of people say, you know, she's being in an abusive relationship or he's in, you know, drinking all the time. And he keeps saying he's going to get out of it. And he never does. And, so, and I'm tired of it and I just can't put up with it anymore. And the fact of the matter is, we all are carrying our own little little baggage around sure. here. And, so, and you know yeah. what I say to that? Have yeah. Considered Al-Anon. Let's talk about you taking care of you, right? Right. Okay. This is this is that I understand because you you don't have control over what your spouse does, your boyfriend right. does. Right. You you and thinking and, and wanting control can raise as many mel- mental health issues, right? Right. It, it, Absolutely. Trying, trying to control it. So the the question becomes how are you taking care of you? What resources are you giving yourself, yourself to, right. to to create a positive mental health situation and, and to understand that you can't control other people? This is true. As much Brian, as you want. Um, 
I want to tell you how much I've enjoyed our conversation. This is, a, you know, three times as long as I normally talk to someone, but you're so fascinating and you have such an interesting story to tell. And we're friends and I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. You are my last official interview of the year before we do Yay. our awards. And I have been holding out, you know, waiting and waiting for you to come on. What would you like to say as your final words before we sign off? Uh, before we sign off uh, on two fronts, uh, I get, I'm sure you get asked this question all the time. People ask me, you know, I'm ready. I'm, 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 I have the book in mind. I'm ready. I don't know what to do. And I say, here's the biggest problem already. Book. Don't you forget, forget about book. Just start writing. Just, Just start, start writing. writing. Right. There are people that will help you make it a book, book. right? Right. Yeah. Right. So. Put your story down. Right. Put your story down, especially memoir, because that's where I get all the time. Memoir. I don't think I'm competent to advise people on fiction yet, but uh, uh, on memoir, uh, I say, look, how many photos do you have of your life? Pick out 10 photos starting from the earliest point in your life, whether it's maybe it's a baby photo or when you become first your cognizant memories, right? And line them out. Write a short story around each photo each chronologically. Yeah. String, you have the spine of a book of there your you memoir. And You've you got your chapters. Yeah. 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 And so that's what I tell them. Just people overthink it. And from the other standpoint, if you, if you are struggling and I understand the shame, uh, maybe you're uh, writing to uh, compensate for the struggle. You know, there is help and there is hope. There is only one requirement for recovery, Pam, just one. And I ask this question, people say, well, you go, I say, what is it? You got to want it, this and that. Be alive. Just stay alive. That's right. And stay alive. Stay above ground. That is the only requirement for recovery. And reach out. Reach out. Don't project out the worst possible response because it's hard. And I understand how scary it is. But take that first scary step because the gifts of recovery are wonderful. And the gifts for me just have not been these three books. They've been renewed family relationships, a, a wonderful marriage, and so many different prongs. I'm so glad for you. Brian Cuban, it has just been a joy to talk to you. Will you come back someday when you have your next book available? You know I will, Pam. Thank you so much for being with me. And folks, thanks for joining us for this extra long edition of Authors on the Air. I appreciate you all. I hope that your holidays are lovely and, and happy. And I want to say thank you, Mom and Dad. And thanks to my producer, Roman. And thanks to my friend, Brian Cuban. Have a good night. Happy holiday. See you in 2020.